Nine, of course. It's nine, okay. Okay. Luke 19, uh, beginning of verse 1, we have our friend Zacchaeus as well. That, uh, whom we'll talk about. Okay. Luke 19, verse 1. Then, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. <laughs> Go hand in hand there. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man, or a severe man. You collect what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I, I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. <laughs> Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, and slay them before me. Well, that's a severe story. Verse 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead, 
going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if, any, if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then As he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. He wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment around you, Surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He was teaching in the temple daily, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Interesting. All right, let's pray. Then we'll jump in uh, to the beginning of chapter 19 here. Uh, Father, we are thankful that we have the privilege of, of um, being in a, in all of our lives in this place of, of awareness of your power and of your presence with us knowing that we have peace with you. And that the peace we have with you isn't on the basis of our ability to keep up and act. It's not rooted in our performance, our obedience. It's not rooted in us, really. We have peace with you because of what you have done. Because you sent Jesus to rescue sinners. Lord, let us not lose sight of it. (laughs) And just as we need you, so does everyone else. Father, would you take the sword of the Spirit, your word, And would you perform that surgery of sanctification in our hearts once more? (laughs) It is you that we need, my Father. It's you. 
Not a show, not an act, not a performance, not even a good time. It is just you that we need. Because we were made for you. Father, be honored in us, I pray. Speak to us and change us in a way that only you can. I ask that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, guys, back up with me to um, the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, One of the things we talked about last week is um, the disciples being amazed at one of Jesus' statements and asking a question that... um, Maybe you wouldn't have thought of, uh, but there's a question that fell in line with the normal theology of the day when Jesus said, it is hard for those, in fact, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's one of the passages we looked at last week, okay? The response of the disciples to this was not, oh, of course, you know, rich people are all selfish. Of course, it's hard for them to enter the kingdom. <laughs> no, no, no. Their response was, who can even be saved then? <laughs> like, that was their response because the normal thinking of the day was that the reason you had riches was because you were you had God's favor or God's blessing, and that equaled riches. It equaled prosperity, okay? And in, uh, of course, there are ways that we think the same way now. We say, I'm blessed because I have good health, right? Or I'm blessed because I have a house or a car or, or whatever. Uh, and, and that's fine, I guess. Um, but then the problem is when we flip-flop that, flip-flop that to the other side and we say, then does it mean if I'm sick that I'm not blessed? Does it mean that people who, who are in poverty, does that mean they are not blessed? Uh, when in fact Jesus said, blessed are the poor. <laughs> in another place, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> because theirs is the kingdom of God. You know. But he gave this teaching saying how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. The disciples' response is, who in the world can even be saved then? I mean, if the rich people who we obviously know God's blessed, if they, you know, it's hard for them to enter the kingdom, then who can even be saved? Jesus' response was, these things... The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now, this is what's going to happen in the beginning of chapter 19. Because we see a rich guy. <laughs> okay, And we see what happens when he is saved or rescued, if we can use that kind of, uh, that kind of language. Um, then verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 1, sorry. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. You guys might remember the story of Jericho, right? It's a familiar story word for many of us, Jericho, right? Joshua fit the battle. I don't, I don't know how you sing it right away <laughs> in the battle of Jericho, right? Uh, some of us grew up with that, right? Um, the first time Joshua went to Jericho, there, there was a great slaughter. This time when Joshua goes to Jericho, remember Jesus is the name Joshua, right? Yeshua, right? Uh, we see uh, someone rescued. We see even in that first situation, someone rescued in that uh, Jericho, uh, the prostitute uh, being rescued, and everyone in her house actually were saved. Um, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. That would be the very normal thing for the tax collectors to be, would be rich, and they were despised 
for that very reason. They were despised because they were working for the Roman um, occupying authorities, collecting taxes for them. They could use the Roman military to extract taxes from people, to get things from people. Uh, sometimes they could get more than what was required. Of course, that's how they could make themselves a living and how they could make themselves rich. Because if you have the authority of the military and you're like, pay up or this guy's going to you know, spear you or whatever, <laughs> then, uh, then, uh, then people can get, uh, people will be afraid. Right. And so they'll want to, they'll want to, um, to give you, uh, at least whatever they can to spare their lives. And of course this itself, this whole idea sets itself up for, um, great opportunities for abuse. And, and there was that, right. There were, uh, there was lots of abuse related to that. So anyhow, so this guy, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he sought to see who Jesus was, um, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he was rich, and he was small, <laughs> of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Um, so, verse 6, he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Now, a couple of things that I think are different about this story. Um, we've seen numerous stories where Jesus was spending time with um, the poor, the sick, the lame. We, we see numerous stories related to that. This is where he chooses to spend time with a rich guy, <laughs> right? Uh, the very people that, uh, if we could say that, the very people group or someone from that people group that he had just said in the last chapter we read, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But as Jesus knows what is in us, so too he knows what is in Zacchaeus. And there's something there in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' response to what happens, um, I think, becomes the evidence for us of what's, what's happening here. Okay, in the way that James talks about faith without works being dead. Okay, uh, so we'll get to that in just a second here. Um, but I do want to at least point out that he goes to a rich guy's house to eat too. <laughs> okay, tonight we uh, we must stay in your house. So he made haste and he came down, and Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully as he read. But the multitudes, the others there, they were confused. They complained, saying he's gone to be a guest with a friend who is a sinner. Jesus would regularly be called the friend of sinners because he spent time with people who the religious elite, the religious leaders, he spent lots of time with people that they thought were nobodies, uh, that they thought were despised. But Jesus spent time with them. He has gone to be a guest with a friend who is a sinner. I said it before, I want to make sure it's clear this is the reason why you can be saved, <laughs> because Jesus spends time with sinners. <laughs> it's the only reason why I can be a part of his kingdom, because he, he, he's humbled himself. And he does this. It's not that they were wrong. It's that they just didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand what he was doing. Then, Verse 8 says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold, four times, what, whatever it is that I have 
stolen by uh, lying, if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation. Zacchaeus' response is one of um, what it looks like to bear fruit that is evident of repentance. That's the idea. What he's saying is, um, this is what I'm going to be doing, or this is what I am doing. It's in the present tense in the Greek, which means something that is beginning and continues on, something that's a repeated thing. Okay. I give half my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Remember what James taught us about faith without works being dead. You say, uh, show me your faith uh, without your works, and, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Right? Like It's, it's what, I'm, what I do that becomes the evidence for what I really believe. And Zacchaeus' faith in the Lord is evidenced by his response here, by what he's choosing to do. I give half my goods to the poor. And uh, if I've taken anything, if I've stolen anything, I'm going to give back four times what it was that I have taken. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. This reminds me of Paul's teaching in Galatians, where Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 7, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Right, Because it, um, in the nation of Israel, sometimes people could say, well, we are children of Abraham. In fact, they did say that to Jesus. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. But it's one thing to be descended physically from Abraham. It's another thing to be uh, a child of Abraham by faith. That is, by believing him, by believing the promises, just as Abraham believed. Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a, a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he, he did. And he still does. He came to seek and to save that in Israel that was lost. And we see parable, story after story after story of Jesus reminding them that God sent the prophet after prophet after prophet to turn the nation back to him. And they rejected, they refused, and then he sent his son and some were saved. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is incredible news that we can be rescued from our sin. But sometimes we look at that and we, um, I mean, I, I grew up in going to, to church. I grew up hearing these things. Um, I've been teaching them for a while now. And, and I realize that sometimes I can be very... Um, sort of the idea of familiarity breeds contempt in that like I just hear this over and over again and so it's like oh yeah yeah Jesus forgives our sin we belong to him you know, as if it's not some monumental <laughs> huge unbelievable thing that we who were his enemies he, he stooped down to save to rescue us from our sin that would have destroyed us had he not now Verse 11 says this. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. This was something Jesus kind of addressed a few times. Like, they asked him when the kingdom of God was coming in the previous chapter. Remember, he said, the kingdom of God is, is right here among you, right? Right? Uh, and then um, later on, when we get to the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples, even after the resurrection, are like, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so uh, this is in line with that. Um, there's a couple of main points I want to bring up related to it. We'll get to those at the end. Uh, there's a very simple 
lesson here in this parable of the ten uh, minas. So I hope that you'll hear it and hear what uh, Jesus is telling uh, us, just as he was telling them. He spoke another parable because, here's the two reasons why he gave this parable, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Remember what's about to happen? He's about to go into the city of Jerusalem in what you and I call the triumphal entry, right? Where he's riding on the, the donkey, right? This was this is like a kingly entry, except that he's on a donkey. Usually, a king would have been on a horse, right? And that itself, that uh, in an, in and of itself, uh, is is a testimony about Jesus' ministry, uh, which we'll talk about in a second here. But because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas. And said to them, do business till I come. Um, the amina uh, is um, approximately a quarter of a year's salary. It's about three months' uh, salary, approximately. Obviously, the value of particular uh, money changes over time. But it's about, about what you and I might think of as three months um, of a salary was the amount of amina. Um, so they delivered to them ten minas and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him. <laughs> Sometimes I love the parables Jesus Jesus tells. His citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. It's interesting that Jesus used that phrase, because that's literally one of the phrases that they're going to use against Jesus in the next week, when he's about to be crucified, and he's there with Pontius Pilate. Their response is, the response of the crowds is, we will not have this man rule over us. And even in this parable, before that happens, Jesus uses that phrase. Um, We will not have this man to reign over us. Verse 15, and so it was that when he entered, having received the kingdom, or when he returned, rather, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are you are an austere or a severe man. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, a severe man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to a master, he has ten minas. For I say to you, here's Jesus sort of summary of the parable. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now, as we examine this parable, I want to remind you of our um, one of our parabolic principles. Typically, parables are given to illustrate a primary central point or theme. Okay, and if you take every single line of a parable, the you'll, you'll make things become, frankly, some of them um, 
um, terrible things, right? Remember Jesus uh, using the story about the unjust judge in the previous chapter, like the woman who kept bothering the unjust judge. <laughs> He's like, use that as a story of saying, keep on praying and don't lose heart by telling a story about an unjust judge who was like, I'm not going to help this lady, but she keeps asking me, so I guess I'll help her. <laughs> you know? If we if we tear apart every part of that story and we say, well, the unjust judge is like God, then we make God look like a terrible unjust judge, right? So it's important that when we examine parables, that we're careful about what we're doing with them, that we look for the primary central theme of the parable, of the illustration, and say, what is the focus of this illustration? What's being told to us here? We're already, we were already told by Luke that Jesus gave this parable for two reasons. One is that he was near Jerusalem. That's the city of David. That's where the king was going to reign. That's what the prophecies said. And the other was that they were expecting uh, the kingdom to come immediately right then. Okay, And so that's why he gave this parable. And the parable is about a man who left people in charge of his stuff saying he was leaving to get a kingdom and he was going to come back. Do you get the main point? Right. The main point is be faithful. Right? Be faithful to what God has given you now because he's coming back and bringing the fullness of the kingdom when he comes. Right. This is the, the, the general idea of this principle here. Um, be careful about people that like to take the end of this and say where it says, but bring here those enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And somebody taking some of these parables and saying, well, this means that, you know, if you aren't faithful with the stuff God's given you, then you're going to, you know, be destroyed or you're going to go to the lake of fire or something. Like, Be careful about the way that people try to break things up in ways that don't... Um, they don't really fit into the general theme of this parable, of what he's saying. The theme, the idea, what is it? Jesus was going to leave them. They didn't understand this. He was going to, to, the, to the cross to be crucified, and he was going to uh, be raised from the dead and then ascend. They didn't understand this yet, but he keeps giving them clues. He keeps giving them hints, right? But the message that we have, that we can take home from this, is that you and I have been given uh, minas, right? We have been given things. You've been given gifts and talents and money and life. And how you choose to utilize it as you follow Jesus will have an effect on what the kingdom is like for you, right? For some, in the parable, Jesus said, the one who is faithful in doing, in, in multiplying what God had given him, the one who was faithful with it, um, he's given authority over 10 cities and then another authority over five cities. But then the one who was like, I just knew that you were real severe. So I just like hid it in a handkerchief and didn't do anything with what you gave me. You know, Jesus said, take what he has and give it to some, give it to somebody else who's doing something with it. <laughs> you know, that's the, the theme of this story here. I hope that you don't miss the, the overarching point. God has given you incredible blessings no matter where you sit today. And you and I have the privilege, the opportunity to use those things for the sake of his kingdom, whatever it is that we have at our disposal, at our hands. Because here's what we know. The king left to get a kingdom, to gather a kingdom, if we could say it that way, right? But he's returning. And you don't know when. And I don't know when. <laughs> it's been 2,000 years. It's so long. But a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. You say two thousand years, and he says it's only been two days. It's not that long. Because time is not the same for him as it is for you and I. <laughs> Be ready. This is a common theme of some of Jesus' um, 
apocalyptic parables. Be ready, because you don't know. That's always true, by the way. Let's say the Lord tarries. He waits. He doesn't return in our lifetime. That was true for every person who's died before us since then, right? Let's say he doesn't. One day you're going to die too, <laughs> right? <laughs> no matter how many times the Lord may or may not heal you of some particular thing, your body will perish. It's, it's wearing away, right? <laughs> so, so what are we doing? What are we doing with uh, our time? That's the thing that I keep just keeps getting me these days is time. Think about how quickly my kids are, are growing up. Uh, time. Time is very short. So how can we use the time that we have for the sake of the kingdom that is beyond time? Right. That's the question I, I want to wrestle with. And say, Lord, how can I be faithful to you in the things that you've given to me? Um, well, now the entry. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, uh, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, some of these names, I want, to, I want you to be familiar with them when you read them in different ways in the, in the Bible. Olivet is the Mount of Olives. Okay, it's another way to refer to the Mountain of Olives, right? There was an olive grove there. There was a garden, some other things there. Uh, it is just outside of the city of Jerusalem. On the east side of the city, there's a valley that goes down. It used to be a, a little brook, a river that ran through it called the Kidron, the Brook Kidron or the Kidron um, River or Brook. Uh, now it's the Kidron Valley because it's been dried up for many years. Okay, it goes down there. And then on the other side of that brook, the other side of that valley on the east side, it goes back up, up to... It's called a mountain, but I want you to remember that most of the mountains in Israel, you and I might call big hills. <laughs> They're not like giant snow-capped mountains like you would think of uh, maybe in, in your imagination. It's not quite like that, but um, it goes back up another uh, large mountainside or hilltop, uh, and that is the Mount of Olives. And on the other side of the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem, further east is where Bethany and Bethphage are located. Okay, um, this, These are the cities of uh, Mary and of Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they live uh, here in this area. That's where they stayed frequently when they traveled to Jerusalem. They would stay there, and then they would go across the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem uh, to do whatever it is they were going to do in the city. And then they'd go back um, to the other side of the Mount of Olives. So, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, verse 30, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. <laughs> Very simple, straightforward answer. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he said to them. I just want to, I want to like, I want that to be a summary of like, why you and I ought to regularly be reading or reading the scriptures, right? Because you're going to find it the way that he said it is about everything about all of life. <laughs> this is why it's so vital, so important for you and I to be pouring over the word of God and allowing the word of God to be pouring over us regularly because it is the God who knows everything, who has spoken to us. He's spoken through the prophets to the fathers of Israel and he's spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things. 
So they found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And that was it. <laughs> they found it exactly the way that Jesus said. And it's so much so that the, pers- the person was like, why are you even loosing the colt? Why are you doing this? The response was exactly what Jesus told them to say. I know it may sound like an oversimplification, but if Jesus is really the Lord, if he is, if he is the creator God, then there's nothing greater, there's nothing grander, there's no deeper wisdom or knowledge or word that you can receive than his. And it is in his word that, that, that there is power because he, he is the living word. Oh, but there's so many other voices, aren't there? There's so many other voices in our world of telling us what is true and what is not. Verse 35 says, And they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their clothes, their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, going down, down the descent into the Kidron Valley to go into the city, uh, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And... Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The first part of this, a quote from Psalm 118, Psalm 118, verse 26. Um, there, many of the Psalms were believed to be messianic. That is, they were believed to be written uh, either about or for the Messiah. And this, no doubt, is one of them as well. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is this passage, this section is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah, um, Zechariah, um, Zechariah nine verse nine, uh, is a promise of the Messiah coming, being humble, lowly, on a donkey, on a colt, in fact. <laughs> but this isn't the image of a king coming with his armies, a man riding a donkey with clothes laid over it, and his armies just common people saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This isn't an army. <laughs> they weren't bringing swords to overthrow the religious leaders or the Roman oppressors. In fact, he's going to humble himself even to the point of death under their power, under their authority, that he might redeem from death. This is the, the great like exchange of God's kingdom. It's so different than the powers of this world. He lays his life down that he might give life to others. <laughs> this is the pattern of the way of Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus in your marriage. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus with your children. It's what it looks like to follow Jesus in a community of believers where we say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give up my life for the sake of others. It is what Jesus did. And he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. 
And then he says to you and to me, come, follow me. <laughs> we have to examine ourselves and say, do I really want to follow him? <laughs> do I really want that? Ah, this is where resurrection comes into play, because if resurrection is true, if he has been raised from the dead, and if he raises from the dead all those who belong to him, all those who follow him, then that really does change everything. But but this has got to transfer from, from just some mental idea deep down into our hearts to really embracing the idea of what it means to, to humble ourselves and to lay our lives down for the sake of others and to, to sacrifice and to give up. Jesus is going to lament over the, the people because while some believed, the vast majority did not. Even as they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39 tells us that some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. And they said this, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. <laughs> like you, you shouldn't let them say this to you. This is blasphemy. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. God made the stones too. Fascinating. All the same particulate matter <laughs> that makes up our bodies, makes up the rocks, makes up the earth, makes up the stars. <laughs> it's amazing. And God has given us life in some peculiar way, different than all of those things, though we're made of the same stuff. <laughs> Verse 41 says, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. God had visited his people Israel as the redeemer and they were rejecting him. Don't forget, all the first apostles, all the first believers were, were um, children of Abraham, right? They were Jews. The, ma the majority of the nation rejected him. And Jesus, when he even talks about this judgment that's going to fall on them, remember he said that um, this generation had blasphemed against the Spirit and judgment was going to fall on it. It was... Um, it was about 40 years later uh, when the city would be destroyed. The city of Jerusalem would be destroyed by Titus Vespasian. He was a Roman general. This was before he became emperor. He would eventually become emperor uh, a little after Nero. Um, but this literal, physical, actual judgment of people, of humans. I want you to note something, though, about Jesus. He doesn't gloat about this. Do you realize it doesn't make him happy to see his enemies destroyed, even to pronounce this judgment on them? What's he doing? He's weeping over them. I, I, um, 
I don't have the reference for it. There's a verse in the in the prophets in the Old Testament that says that God does not rejoice over the death of the wicked, but that he turned from his wicked ways. But the way that sometimes people in the church can talk about what you and I call enemies of God's church or of God's people or of truth or freedom, whatever nonsense we want to spout, the way that we view and talk about people seems so different than the way that Jesus did. He wept over them, even in the midst of their rejection of him. It didn't make him happy to say judgment is coming. If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Romans chapter 5 reminds us, after Paul talks about how we've all sinned in the beginning of the book of Romans, Jew and Gentile alike, we fall short of the glory of God. But we're saved um, by his grace through faith. Paul reminds us in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And I know, again, this is one of those things that I grew up hearing over and over and over again, but... Sometimes it just didn't carry a lot of weight and sometimes still doesn't because I forget that in my sin, I'm an enemy of God and and of his work. Deserving of wrath, of judgment. Because I pollute my own life and the lives of the people around me as I sin against them. And I further pollute the world in which we all live together. But even though I was his enemy, he came and he ransomed me. He he bought us back. He rescued us. Even though I was dead in sin, he made me alive together with him in the Messiah. By grace, through faith. This idea of having peace with God is something that there's so many religious systems predicated on really a what you and I might think of as a mosaic covenant type of model, where the system says, um, here are the steps you need to follow. And once you follow these steps, then you'll have peace with God, right? And sometimes people say, well, that's the Ten Commandments. You just keep the Ten Commandments and then you'll have peace with God, right? Remember, uh, in, in Moses, in the Torah, in the law, uh, they said, um, God said, do these things and you'll live. And the response of the people was, we will do them <laughs> and we'll live. But they couldn't. <laughs> and they didn't. And neither do we. Right? And so many people live their entire lives trying to make peace with God thinking that they can somehow, on the basis of good things outweighing bad things, maybe in some religious systems there is this sort of infinite cycle of good and evil where, where there's balance between the two, you know. <sighs> but not so in the way that God has revealed himself. He is true and just and good And he punishes iniquity, and I'm glad that he does. 
but I'm also terrified that he does because it means that, that he should punish my iniquity. And this is where the coming of Jesus carries so much weight. It is by him that we have peace with God. And if I have peace with God by him, by his offering, by his sacrifice, then that means that I can filter the things that happen in my life through a different type of filter. Not one that says, am I doing okay or not doing okay? But one that says, hey, God has loved me and I know that God loves me because he already gave the very best for me when he sent Jesus to die on the cross. And if he delivered him up for us all, then how much more will he not freely give us all good things, right? If he's already given Jesus for us to rescue us, then I can filter the things that happen in my life through a different sort of filter. One where I recognize that the sovereign king over all of created order, who is himself not out of control. When he allows something in my life, I can look at that thing and I can say, God, even this is filtered through your love. Help me to trust you. Whether I deem this thing good or bad is usually only in my immediate feelings in whatever the circumstances are. When I choose to say this thing that happened to me is good or this thing that happened to me is bad, usually I'm making those judgments based only on my immediate feeling of whether or not I felt good or bad about it. But that actually has no real bearing on whether or not it is in the end good or bad. <laughs> and in many ways, I, I, I lack the capacity to fully see and understand the breadth of all of the things that happen in my life and the the infinite consequences that spread out from one thing, like a ripple of water spreading out from one, one drop in it, spreading out and affecting so many other things, right? Oh, but we want to be God. <laughs> and so we want to be in control and we want to know, you know, instead of trust. And I say, Lord, help me to grow as a man who trusts you. That's what I want. And I pray that you guys would uh, pursue that same thing together with me. Even in Jesus, again, this additional pronouncement of judgment against the nation, we see him weeping over the city. The things that make for your peace, if you had only know, especially, known, especially in this your day. Some have referenced the Daniel prophecies when Daniel said from the going forth of the command to rebuild the city until the coming of Messiah, there'd be a certain number of, time, of weeks and then he would be cut off. And then, of course, there's this missing week in Daniel's prophecies, this missing heptad, a word that means seven. It's missing seven years. <laughs> They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple, verse 45 says, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. My house is a house of prayer. This is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of of prayer for all nations. But you've made it a den of thieves. I heard again about, I don't like to always say names, whatever, but it was Kenneth Copeland 
some new thing about him not wanting to get vaccinated, and so he his followers should give him enough money to buy another private jet so he doesn't have to get vaccinated so he can fly whatever I don't know I don't know <sighs> I know that everybody doesn't see it this way for me personally this is why I find it hard to like sell things if we're like a people who follow Jesus together for us to have like if you're wondering why we don't have all the cool swag you know like the refuge shirts and stickers and all that stuff like it's just because I don't want to sell anything. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to be a business. Um, you know, n not that. I'm not saying anything about other groups. I'm talking about my my personal feeling about about it. I just find it difficult to wrestle with, and I, and um, the same with like having a bookstore and stuff like that. You know, like. Um, but there are other things that are more sinister. Shall I say sinister? I shall say it. <laughs> that are more sinister. Like the, uh, we have this person who's going to give X amount of dollars as a matching thing. If you give X amount of dollars, you know, it's like, what? Like, why are we using manipulation to try and get people to get something to our to our group like what what a weird thing and we have the american church has indeed polluted itself in the eyes of the unbelieving world have we not you've made it a den of thieves he said even then the temple had become that way My house is a house of prayer. And I say, Lord, let that be true of us together. Obviously, I can't make judgments about what anyone else is doing, but I can say, Lord, help us to, to follow you to the best of our ability, what we see is right. And, and um, you know, maybe we'll have shirts one day. We'll, they'll just be free. <laughs> Or stickers or whatever. I don't care. But part of it, here's what I also know. I also know that like there's like a whole marketing thing, and there's like you got to get your name out there, and this is how you make things grow, and there's this whole businessy thing that is adopted um, by the church. And um, the reality is that I can't grow God's church. Only He can do that, and He does that through the foolishness of preaching, through just announcing that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead, and somehow God chooses to use that to rescue some of us. And, and it's, it's a beautiful, remarkable miracle, as it ought to be. <clears throat> but we can also make the church a business if we want. <laughs> and, um, and we can, it becomes insidious in that, we begin to view things as saying, well, what we need to do is do the things that people want, or people like, because then people will come. And then, and then we begin to play act in our services and, and, and put on performances to look a particular way because people like to be entertained, right? I mean, my word, the entertainment industry is such a big thing. And if we want people to come, then we've got to entertain them because that's what they like is entertainment, you know. And I've heard the other side, people say, well, you know, we do this and, and, you know, we do this, but we know that we're going to get the message to them. And so it's worth it because the end justifies the means. <laughs> like, okay, 
I don't really care to go down that road. Uh, a couple reasons for me personally, just personally. One is that I'm really bad at it. I'm just not good at that. Other one is that I feel rebuked when I read this, if if I take that kind of approach. And and I'm really, I really, really want to please the Lord. That's what I want. And that's... Um, I want to be faithful to him with the the mina that he's given me <laughs> and and it's really like only one little thing that I that I have but I just want to be faithful with that thing and I, and I'll let God sort out all the rest of it um, so then how then can our time our fellowship together be a house of prayer and how then can we protect ourselves from becoming a den of thieves God give us wisdom <laughs> and help us to rebuke each other when we need it. <laughs> Slap each other. Don't do that <laughs> when we need it. Verse 47. Indeed, he was teaching in the, daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Because of the multitudes, because of the crowds, at this point they were unable to really do anything while he was going into the temple daily. And this is why... If you remember the story later on, when they come out to um, the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, right? They had drawn up crowds and they were all coming out there with their mob to arrest him. Jesus' response, one of his responses is like, guys, I've been daily in the temple teaching and you didn't do anything then, you know? But they, they went out when he was like out, out of the city, away from all the crowds. He was out there with just his disciples, you know, so um, uh, for them to uh, sort of get him set up in that uh, in that position. So, anyways, even in spite of all of these things, this incredible faithfulness, obviously, that Jesus had to just do what the Father had commanded him to do. That's the kind of fortitude, the kind of discipline I want to have. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and I think that's one of the best descriptions of what it means to follow Jesus. Just keep on walking with him. Keep on. Just keep on going. <laughs> Don't lose heart. <laughs> Be faithful to what he's, he's given to you. Invest in his kingdom by looking for ways to, frankly, in most, most situations, to give away what you have. <laughs> Look for how you can do that in ways that um, benefit and bless the people around you. And trust that the Lord uh, is faithful. And um, though he hasn't returned in 2,000 years, and you might be saying, that's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. I mean, it's not a long time to him. But it's a long time. Um, but your death will be a lot sooner than another 2,000 years, so don't worry about it. <laughs> right? um, God give us wisdom that we not that we do not be people who gloat over or rejoice over something that seems to be judgment on a particular group or particular people. Even Jesus concerning Israel wept as he talked about their coming judgment. I want 
to follow Jesus, and I pray that that is the thing that you guys are after too. Um, so let's pray as uh, Jesus comes to the comes into the city now this final week as we continue our story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so, so much for your patient and full love for us. It is more than we can imagine. And it's good for us. It's good for us to spend time in your word, thinking about you, resting together with you as we hear your words. Lord, thank you that we have peace with you, not through our acts of obedience, but rather through the finished work of Jesus for us on the cross and through his resurrection. You have fully accepted us and committed yourself to changing us from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. As the days pass, my Father, as the weeks move on, as the years march on and the decades keep going, I'm reminded in our this text today, as we've gone through it, that sometimes um, there are long seasons of just marching faithfully. Of not hyping up things, pretending like there's some incredible monument or whatever words we want to use. They're just hype words, Lord. Sometimes being faithful to you feels like death. Because you've asked us to die to ourselves. Being faithful to you in our marriages, is sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard in our, as we are faithful to you and we, we give up our lives for our children. As we sacrifice for, for our community. As we esteem others better than ourselves. But it's not these things that the world is teaching us. Because your way is not the way of the rest of the world. Help us to remember that you, in fact, are a king. And you are the king. You are still the king. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in, indeed, the government is upon your shoulders. Lord, would you breathe into us of your life in that particular way that only you can. Lord, teach us to trust you. <laughs> Please. I pray that you would help in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, you guys. It is. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Right on time, basically. <laughs> okay. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And the Lord lift up his smile on you and give you peace, you guys.